Well, it's, it's so good to be here at Northside where you connect people to Jesus. Anybody does that, I'm in. Uh, Nate asked me to talk about one of the unsung heroes of the New Testament, which is a young man named John Mark. Since my name is Mark, I thought I would just describe his life to you in first person. So act one, scene one, begin. When I was a younger man, he was in my house. Now, I was still a teenager, but barely. I thought I was a grown man. I had a lot of growing to do. But as a young man, the master came to our house. You call it the Last Supper. We had no idea it was the Last Supper. All we knew was that his key men were coming into our house, and they ate upstairs. That was kind of where our guest room was. And I was, I was so livid. I was not invited. I wanted to be there so badly. So I just sat there late in bed while they're having a, it was a Passover meal upstairs and I'm listening in. I couldn't really hear the conversations. When someone spoke loudly, I could kind of make it out. I heard Peter actually say, you're never gonna wash my feet. And I laughed and go like, surely Peter. And then Jesus said something to him and the whole place got deadly silent. I'm listening the whole night. And though I couldn't hear the conversations, what I could hear were footsteps. And I remember one set of footsteps. Somebody left. I don't know who it was, but they went down the stairs and then off into the darkness. And after, I don't know, an hour or so, all of them left. Like all 12, Jesus and the 11 remaining apostles, they went down the stairs and out into the night. And I knew where they were going because they'd been there before. It's a spot for prayer. It was actually not really a spot for prayer. It was, a, it was an olive grove, and it was our olive grove right there on the side of the Mount of Olives. I don't know if you've been there. It's, that's our plot of ground. And Jesus would go there and pray. We kind of had a walled-in area that kept out the riffraff, and Jesus loved that spot. We loved it as well. And it was a, a little while after they left, there was another knock on the door. It wasn't just a knock. It was a pounding on the door. It jolted all of us out of bed. And when we opened the door, I instantly knew who the first set of footsteps was. I was confused. I was furious. Because there he stood, Judas Iscariot. With a company of soldiers. I don't know if you know much about the Roman military. A company of 600 men. And they're standing in the street in front of our house. Now, if you've been to our house, you would know that the streets are only like eight feet wide. So they were clogged, a, the, a block that way, a block the other way. There were just soldiers everywhere surrounding our house. And it was right for them to bring that many soldiers because Jesus was popular. We were the epicenter of the movement in Jerusalem. Loyal freedom fighters for our Messiah Jesus. And I knew I had to warn him because I knew that Judas knew where Jesus was if he wasn't here. And so I had to run and, and I tell Jesus that the soldiers are coming to take cover, but I couldn't get out of the house. The, the, the street was full of all these armed guards, a militia going after my Messiah. So I had to wait till they cleared the street. And when the last soldier rounded the corner, I bolted. 
I, I couldn't run a straight line to the garden because, well, they were in the shorter path. So I had to run around, and by the time I got to the garden, it was, it was too late. From a distance, I saw him do it. He grabbed Jesus and kissed him on both cheeks like he was a friend. I could have killed him. And Peter wanted to. As I approached, I saw Peter reach for the butcher knife. I assume it was the one they used to carve the Passover lamb. He had it in his belt and he pulled it out like in one sweeping motion. He was trying to give Malchus a haircut at the collarbone. But Malchus was quicker than Peter was. He's an old fisherman, had some arthritis, and he just like, Malchus ducked in the ear, just I saw it in the moonlight, I saw it flip and land in the dust. And in subtle tones, I leaned and I heard Jesus say to the guards, they had his arms already pinned behind his back. And he said, permit me this. And he reached down, he picked up the ear. You, you should have been there. It was, extra I saw it. This is not a rumor. This is not a fable or a fairy tale. I saw him put the ear back on. Those poor guards then had to actually pull Jesus' arms again behind his back. That would have made me nervous. And something happened where Jesus said, Peter, put that thing away. You're going to put someone's eye out. If you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. I was ready to die by the sword. But when Jesus took the only weapon away from us that we knew how to use. We had no recourse but to run. I was a little slower on the uptake because I, I still couldn't believe what was happening, but all the, the apostles, they just scattered. And I'm left standing there by myself and I, I felt a, a big paw on my shoulder. He grabbed me. Now, when I left the house, I left in such a hurry, I didn't even put my cloak on. All I had was my tunic. And we're, we're a well-to-do family, so my tunic was a linen garment. That's what higher class people wore. But underneath, I had nothing. I was naked. And when the guard grabbed my garment, I slipped out of it and ran into the night. Well, I wasn't buck naked. I had a loincloth on, but we call that naked. It was embarrassing. But what was more embarrassing is that I left Jesus naked. Everyone had abandoned him in the hands of his enemies in the darkness of night. And I knew that it was over. All our dreams were dashed. I knew that, except that it wasn't over. And scene. All of that comes out of two verses. And I didn't really just make it up whole cloth. As a historian, this is my reconstruction of what must have happened with a guy by the name of John Mark. Now, if you've read the Bible, maybe you ran across a book called Mark. That's, that's his book. And at the tail end of his book, here are two verses that he writes that aren't in any of the other gospels. He alone tells this story. Now, the other gospels say that the apostles ran. We know that to be true. And we know that the, the Last Supper was in this upper room, which was likely the house of Mary. That's John Mark's mother. Same house where the 120 gathered in Acts chapter 1. Same house where the prayer meeting was when Peter was in prison, Acts 
12. So this was the house in the old city of Jerusalem. This is where so much of Christian history happened. But here's what Mark writes about this garden incident that nobody else writes. Verse 51. One young man following behind was clothed only in a long linen shirt. When the mob tried to grab him, he slipped out of his shirt and ran away naked. Now let me ask you a question. Who would write that? Like who cares about some streaker in the Garden of Gethsemane? Unless you are the naked person. That makes it much more memorable. I'm convinced that this is Mark's signature on his book. And that tells me a lot about Mark. He's a young man with good motives that makes some stupid mistakes. I am that kind of Mark. I won't bore you with the details, but some of the mistakes I made as a young man, they're just too embarrassing to talk about publicly. Can I get a witness? Are there any other men, like like women, I, I can't speak for you because I don't even understand you. Love you, don't understand you. But I do understand men. And young men often make these stupid mistakes that have a long shelf life. And here's what I want to say to you men. Your failures don't have to define you. And so many men make the mistake of living in the rear view mirror instead of in the windshield. Because they don't have an older man in their life that say, no, you can get past your past. And God has a purpose for you and God has a future for you if you will let him transform you. But the problem for most John Marks is that their mistakes aren't marked by just one incident. Sometimes we replicate these errors over time. That's exactly what happened to John Mark. Act one, scene two. He has another failure, and this time it was on a mission field. To give you a little background of the story, you need to fast forward to the book of Acts. In chapter 12 of Acts, we find the only place where the word mission is used. Now, Paul had three missionary journeys, but they're never called a mission in the book of Acts. Here's the only, this is weird, the only mission in Acts is when Paul and Barnabas go from Antioch back to Jerusalem to feed the poor. And on that mission, it says that they picked up a young man named Mark. I'll read the text for you, Acts 12, 25. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission to Jerusalem, they returned taking John Mark with them. That's this cat, this kid. And what we learn later from the epistles is that Barnabas was a relative of John Mark. My guess is he was a cousin or you know, maybe a second uncle once removed, but let's just say he was a cousin. Barnabas but that's not even in his real name. It's his nickname, and it means son of encouragement. He was a guy that defended people who had failure in their life. We all need a Barnabas, right? We, we all need somebody to come along and say, look, I know you made a mistake, but I still believe in you. And Barnabas still believed in Mark. And he takes this young, it, was, it wasn't Paul's idea. In fact, this is what you should know. It wasn't even Paul at the time, it was Saul. Saul of Tarsus was not yet the apostle Paul. 
And Saul of Tarsus, you know, he had his own failure. He was a murderer. His words, not mine. Saul of Tarsus, even after he was converted, went to Arabia for three years to be trained personally by the resurrected Jesus. When he comes back, he tries to go back to Jerusalem and he wants to connect to the other apostles, but no one will have him. No one will have him. Would you? If you had a church, not like this church, big auditorium, but a house church, would you let Saul of Tarsus into your house when he's the one that made you a widow? He's the one that made your children orphans. He was untouchable, except for Barnabas. Barnabas escorted Saul, not into an auditorium like this, but into the secret lair, the homes where Christians were meeting in private. And there he was. Everyone was so exposed. I imagine there were people livid that Barnabas had the audacity to show this ex-murderer where they met. And he does the same thing for John Mark. When Barnabas goes up to Antioch, it was the first church in history that was multi-ethnic. And it was the first place, therefore, that they were called Christians. Because no other term made any sense. They weren't Jews, because they also had Greeks and Syrians and Egyptians and Romans. They weren't rich because they also had poor. They weren't free because they also had slaves. They weren't male because they also had female. It was a multi-ethnic, multi-generational, multi-faceted church. And Barnabas was one of the leaders. You need an encouragement like that, right? And Barnabas said, this is growing too fast. I need help. Who can I get to help me? And he went and hunted down Saul of Tarsus. And he brings him to help with this mission. And then the Holy Spirit engaged and said, we want you too, the Holy Spirit, well, I want you too to go on a mission. And Barnabas said, let's take John Mark. That's recorded in the next chapter, chapter 13, verse five. Uh, there, they, they went on this mission. There in a town of Salamis, they went to a Jewish synagogue and preached the word of God. John Mark went with them as their assistant. Now, I don't know if he was the children's pastor. I don't know if he was carrying luggage. I don't know what John Mark was doing, but he was, he was a helper. He wasn't in charge. He was a helper. And in this team, read it carefully, it is Barnabas and Saul, not Paul and Barnabas. It was Barnabas and Saul and John Mark. That was the org chart for the mission team. And then they went all the way across the island of Cyprus. You can go vacation there today. It's a beautiful island in the Mediterranean. And they got to the other side of the island, a city called Paphos. And in Paphos... You can fact check me, it's Acts 13. They meet Sergius Paulus, a proconsul, equivalent to what we would call a state governor. Big deal. Saul and Barnabas had never preached to anyone of his clout, but they get an audience with this politician. And the politician's advisor, his name was oddly Jesus, it was a magician, he, he was very offended. Why are you listening to Saul when you should be listening to me. And he tried to undercut Saul of Tarsus. You should have been there, it's hilarious. Saul gets mad at this magician and like a miraculous event, he didn't heal the man, he actually made him blind. Strikes him with blindness, 
which is odd for Saul to do because that's exactly what Jesus did to him when he was converted. Remember the story? And so this guy's walking around blind, and everyone goes, whoa, he's untouchable. And Sergius Paulus converted to Jesus that day. Huge deal. I don't know if you've ever had a governor baptized in your church or a major athlete baptized in your church, but it got everyone's attention. And it was at that moment that Saul of Tarsus became the Apostle Paul. And for the rest of his life, he didn't go by his old name, Saul. He went by his new name, Paul. My guess is that Saul was his Jewish name, but now that he's reaching Gentiles, he goes by a more Roman name. And maybe he wanted to go by the name of his most famous convert, Sergius, get it, Paulus, Paul. But the other thing that changed And it is like a line in the sand moment. The other thing that changed was that Barnabas was no longer at the top of the org chart on their little mission team. Paul was. And for the rest of the book of Acts, you don't read about Barnabas and Saul. You read about Paul and Barnabas. And apparently that didn't set well with John Mark. So he bugged out, left, Which I don't know that that was a sin. I don't know that that was like anything offensive. But Paul was very offended by it. Actually called it apostasy later. Put that in your pocket and I'll bring it out in a minute. But here you have Saul of Tarsus. Now Paul offended that John Mark would leave. Maybe he left because he was homesick. I don't know. Maybe he left because he was offended that Paul took over the missionary journey. Maybe he left because Paul and Barnabas left Cyprus and went north into Turkey. It was riddled with bandits. It was riddled with malaria. And maybe John Mark goes, hey, I didn't sign up for this. Like, I wanted to come to the island where my cousin had property, but now we're going far afield and I just don't know. So he goes back to Jerusalem. That created a rift between Paul and Barnabas. And if you fast forward to Acts 15, and they've just had this massive council, it's really probably the most important church council in the history of Christianity because they were deciding, Peter was there, and Barnabas was there, and Paul was there, and James was there, Jesus' brother. They were deciding whether you, if you're a Gentile, that is, unless you're Jewish, you could be a Christian or if you had to be a Jew first and then become a Christian. That was what they were deciding. And fortunately for all of us, they said, if you're a Gentile, you could be a Christian without being Jewish, which means we can all eat bacon, praise God. (laughs) After the council, they are so excited about the victory for Christianity that Paul has an idea. I wanna read you Paul's idea. And it was a good idea. Verse 36. After some time, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit each city where we previously preached the word of the Lord to see how, they, how the new believers are doing. Barnabas agreed and wanted to take along John Mark, his nephew. How do you think that's going to go over with Paul? About like a hot dog at Hanukkah. Oh, come on, that was funnier than that. But Paul disagreed strongly since John Mark had deserted them, apostatized. 
in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in their work. Their disagreement was so sharp that they separated. Barnabas took John Mark with him and sailed for Cyprus. Now, I, don't, I wasn't there, so I don't know how the conversation went. But it went something like this. Paul, hey Barnabas, we just had a great victory in Jerusalem. Uh, the grace is expanding. Let's go back and visit the churches, the churches of Cyprus and the churches of Pamphylia, of Antioch and, and Lystra. Let's go see how those churches are doing. That's a great idea. In fact, I got another great idea. Let's, let's go back to where we were and let's take John Mark. We, that's a terrible idea. John Mark apostatized. He didn't, apost he didn't apostatize. Quit being so melodramatic, Paul. You're always doing that. You're always like being overcritical of people. Give him some grace. You just argued for grace, give him some grace. I give grace to those who come to Jesus. But when you talk about church leadership, I don't have grace because it's too serious. We have lives on the line. I know there are lives on the line, like lives of John Mark. And if we can get him back in the saddle and back into leadership, how many lives could he save if we show him grace? I'm not gonna take a risk on a flaky young man. Oh, you mean you're not gonna take a risk on him like I took on you? You would not be here if it wasn't for me. Remember, I'm the one that brought you to the apostles. You are Apostle Paul because I showed you the grace. I'm asking you to sow John Mark. Well, I'm not showing grace to John Mark. You're wrong. No, I'm right, and I'm not going. Well, I'm not going with you. And scene. <laughs> can you imagine? Can you imagine John Mark sitting there just going, Oh, no, I just caused the divorce of the great missionary team. I know how that feels. I don't know what your biography is, but I've had one man in my life, he was a mentor to me. We traveled to Russia to do mission work together. We traveled to Amman, Jordan to do mission work together. We were thick as thieves. But when we were in Jordan, I did something and I never intended to hurt his feelings. I in fact, I didn't even know I hurt his feelings for weeks. But I said something in 15 seconds that broke our relationship. I tried to apologize, but he wouldn't return my calls. I tried to meet with him, but he refused to meet with me. My friend Bob went to be with the Lord. I hope we reconcile in heaven, but we didn't on earth. It was years that that hung over me. And I know what John Mark is feeling right now. I know what failure feels like. And men, so do you, don't you? But you need to know John Mark's story. Because Barnabas was right, lives are on the line. And if you don't get your stuff together, it won't just impact you and your family. It will impact perhaps hundreds of lives of people who need to know the Lord Jesus that will learn Jesus from you, not from Nate, not from the staff, from you. The majority of people in your city don't go to church. But they work with you. They go to the gym with you. 
They're soccer moms with you. And if you don't get past your past, then they won't have a future with Jesus. So I want to tell you the second half of John Mark's story. This is act two, scene one. You know Mark probably more from his book than from his biography. John Mark wrote the book of Mark. And again, I can't prove this, but as a historian, I'm reconstructing the events. And I want to show you when the turn took place for young John Mark. Now, he knew Peter. Peter had been in his home in the upper room at the Last Supper. Peter had preached in his home at the house church in Mary's house in Acts chapter 1. In fact, when they replaced Judas Iscariot, the apostle, Peter was there, and that was in his house. In Acts chapter 12, Peter is in prison. It's the night before Passover. Herod Agrippa I had just murdered the first apostle. James was his name. It beheaded him, cut his head off. It was gruesome. But the people loved it, and so Herod wanted to do it again for political advantage, and he was going to do it to Peter. Peter is in chains. Both hands are chained, both feet are chained, and he's chained to a guard. This is like protective custody. And the next morning, he's going to die. And what's Peter doing? Not what I would be doing. He's dead asleep. Talk about confidence in the Lord. Like he's asleep before he's gonna be executed in a few hours and an angel has to go wake him up and says, Peter, like, like a log. This is hilarious. You can't make this up. The angel actually had to kick him in the side to say, Peter, wake up. And Peter wakes up. He still thinks he's dreaming. The chains fall off miraculously. The door opens miraculously. He goes into the city. The city gates open miraculously and he finds himself at the door of Mary's house and he knocks on the door. He's a fugitive of the law, so he's trying to be quiet. But the, the people inside are praying. What are they praying for? His release. But they don't even believe that he's released when he's at the door, when that's what they're praying for. He knocks on the door, and Rhoda was the guard. Now, Rhoda was a teenage girl. And you might be thinking, why in the world would you have a teenage girl guard the door? Or shouldn't you have a big old bruiser there? Uh, no, actually, guards at the door, they, they, they had two jobs that teenage girls are made for. They have to stay up all night and they have to scream really loud. Like if you're a teenage girl, like this is God, this is your gift to God and his gift to you. So Rhoda comes to the door and I don't wanna insult any teenage girl, but she was like typically dumb. And she gets so excited, she goes, Peter's at the door, Peter's at the door. But she doesn't open the door. Hello. So Peter's knocking, he's, like, like, he's in the street and lights are starting to come on. Like, what's the commotion? He's going, would you let me in? I'm a fugitive. So they let him in and they're all going, Peter. And he's going, shh. I don't want to get arrested again. So here's, here's the end of the story. He said, Peter says in verse uh, 17, he motioned for them to be quiet, to quiet down, and told them how the Lord had led him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers what happened, he said, and then he went to another place. Okay, what other place? We don't know. This is like 
top secret information. Nobody knows where Peter's going. To this day, we don't know. Here's what I think happened. When Peter left, John Mark was on the mission trip. And when Peter bugged out of the mission trip, he comes home with his tail between his legs. His mother Mary was probably supportive of him, but you couldn't be proud of your son when you abandon a mission trip with Barnabas and Paul. And she said, you know, maybe the best thing for you right now is to go be a helper. You were a helper to Paul. Maybe you could be a helper to Peter. And if my historical reconstruction is accurate, he went to Rome, to the capital of the city, and there Peter is preaching in Rome. And, and Mark is just writing everything down that he said. I don't know if you know this, most scholars believe that Mark was the very first gospel penned. I do as well. Mark started it. And I don't know if you know this, gospel is not a religious term. It was a political term. Mark was the first one to use it as a religious term. And in fact, Mark wasn't using it as a religious term. He was using it as a political term. Gospel means good news. And it was about the emperor. Good news, the emperor got married, so now we can have a family and have an heir to the throne. Good news, the emperor had a baby. Good news, a general came back and won the war. It was about generals, it was about emperors, and Mark made it about Jesus. Because for Mark, Jesus is the only emperor that matters. And here's this, this like maybe TMI, but I, this, like I geeked out over this. In the Greek language, gospel is almost always plural. Even if it was a singular good news, they would say, hey, the emperor had a baby, that's good newses. Why plural? Because there's always gonna be another emperor. There's always gonna be another baby. There's always gonna be another war. But Mark, in Rome, I remind you, it's in Rome. He has the audacity to refer to Jesus as the good news, singular. And every Christian only used gospel singular because there is only one good news and it is Jesus Christ. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords and Mark wrote that in Rome. Bam! And he finally got a W under his belt. In fact, I don't know if we would ever have a gospel of Matthew if we didn't have a gospel of Mark. Because Mark, Matthew used Mark's gospel to write his. I don't know if we would have had a gospel of Luke if we never had the gospel of Mark. And then John, he used all three of them to write his. Mark started this movement of documenting the life and history of Jesus. He had to get past his past to do that. Act two, scene two. We're going way forward in time now. This is near Peter's death and near Paul's death. I want to read to you the last thing that Peter wrote. It was not the very last thing. He wrote two letters late in his life. And at the end of his first letter, Peter writes, your sister church here in Babylon, that's a code word for Rome, sends you greetings. And so does, you reading this? My son, Mark. He became so valuable to the greatest apostle of the Jews. The very last thing that the apostle Paul wrote, he's in a dungeon. 
I've actually been in that dungeon. It's called the Mamertine Prison. It's in Rome at the head of the forum. You can go there today and go into the dungeon where Paul penned these words in a dank, dark place. Paul writes, only Luke is with me. Bring Mark with you when you come, for he will be helpful to me in my ministry. He recovered his name. As I was preparing for this message, I learned something that just blew me away. I, I never knew this before. John Mark is called John Mark up until Acts 15. When Paul and Barnabas split, John Mark was John Mark. I don't know if you had a nickname growing up or you know, maybe your mama called you Billy instead of William or whatever it was. John Mark was John Mark and that was the name attached to his failure. But after that moment, he is never called John Mark again. Not by Peter, not by Paul, not by Luke. He's called Mark. That's why the book in your Bible is not John Mark, it's Mark. He actually recovered his name. And it reminds me of another Mark. He's a, he's a student I had years ago. He was actually, uh, Nate told me this uh, yesterday, that Mark Hostetler is the reason he's in ministry. Mark Hostetler was an identical twin whose father had a bad reputation in their town. And Mark and his identical twin, Heath, were raised in a children's home in Oklahoma because his own parents couldn't raise them. And Mark decided after going to Bible college that he and his twin brother are going to recover the dignity of the name Hostetler. And now two decades later, I have never heard the Hostetler name outside of a compliment. Men, you may have a reputation, you may have a name that has some stories attached to it, but for God's sake, would you get past your past? Redeem your name in this city. Not for your name's sake, but for the countless people who are counting on you to find the name of Jesus because of what is written in your biography. Failure doesn't define you when grit marks you. And for some of you men, it's time for you to get off the sideline and to get active in your faith to redeem the name. The rearview mirror is over. You can't undo that. But there's a windshield that's wide open for the grace of Jesus Christ if you will simply let Jesus redeem your name by serving him relentlessly. Holy Father, for the man who walks in here with a bad memory of a past, would you overwhelm the rearview mirror with the hope of the windshield? Would you give him the grit to continue to sacrifice for Jesus Christ so that the winds of his future will give wind to the sails of people who will draft along with him into the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. May the story of John Mark live again right here at Northside. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's go out and make Jesus famous.